I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ this morning, but I am ashamed. I am ashamed of what mankind did to Jesus leading up to his cross and while he was on the cross. I am ashamed of my personal contribution to the necessity of that cross. I am ashamed that my sins made it so. It needed to happen because without it, I could never go to heaven. And so knowing that I'm the reason, at least one of the reasons behind all of this pain and suffering and agony, I feel a sense of shame. I don't know how many times I've preached on the story of the cross, but I know this, I've never felt adequate to do so. And the longer I live and the closer I get to my Lord, the less adequate I feel to do so. And the the harder it is to get through without losing composure. Because this is not just a sermonic exercise this morning. It is a visitation of something marvelous and yet something so shameful and ignominious. Ignominious means shameful. The ignominy of the cross, the shame of the cross, the glory of the cross. I think back to what it must have been like for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they enjoyed the fellowship of God every day and he was right there in their midst and then suddenly sin enters in and that fellowship is broken and they are expelled from the garden paradise and now what? Now what do we do? I'm ashamed to think of the fact that the sin that they committed is not just theirs, it's also mine because I can look at others and say, look at their lives, but then I stop and realize in Romans 3 and verse 10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3 and verse 23. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not says Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, and in a parenthetical expression in 1 Kings 8 verse 46, the simple statement, there is no man that sinneth not. I'm astonished that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden paradise and that God would still give mankind a chance. That shows us something about him. But I also want you to go back in your mind and think about Adam and Eve wearing those animal skins. We know that at first they were naked and not ashamed, Genesis 2.25, but then sin entered in and they're trying to hide themselves in the midst of the trees there in the garden. And God calls out to them, and you will recall, of course, that they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And the next thing you see is God clothing them with animal skins And some have suggested, well, it's about modesty and issues concerning that. Well, I'm not suggesting there aren't any principles we can learn from that, but I do want us to remember what really is the key thing to get out of that. I suspect based on the Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And I suspect that with all of the animal sacrifices for sins that were offered in the Old Testament, that we're looking at the very first one here. And can you imagine wearing the garment that would remind you constantly of why those animals had to die? 
I don't know what it was like to live under the Jewish law and to take an innocent little lamb to the priest and then to participate in the slain of that innocent little lamb and watch the blood flow from its body and realize the only reason this lamb had to die is because of me. It's my fault. I did that. But there's something more shameful than looking at a lamb dying and thinking, oh, I caused that. Friends, the very Son of God took upon him the robe of human flesh, Philippians 2, 5 and following. He became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. And as I watch him and I see him suffer and agonize, I think to myself, I did that. I'm partially responsible. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and what? Shame. And I love that old cross, but at the same time, as the good brother said, as he was doing the Lord's Supper, there is the moment I think about all the agony and the pain and the suffering, and I'm amazed by that, ashamed by it, but I'm also amazed by the glory of the cross as well. And the Old Testament writings are not bashful about telling us that there would be shame associated with the cross of Christ. In fact, the Psalms contain a number of Messianic Psalms, which uh, remind you of David, but also point to Christ. And one of those Psalms is Psalm 69 and verse 7, wherein we read, For thy sake I've borne reproach, notice, shame has covered my face. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. And later in that very passage, it talks about them giving him, when he was thirsty, vinegar to drink, an anticipation of what happened to Jesus as he hung upon Calvary's tree. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus despised the shame and was willing to endure the cross. The Romans and the Jews alike considered the crucifixion one of the most shameful ways you could possibly die. The Romans reserved it for their slaves, their foreigners, their desperate criminals. And so for Jesus to be hanging there in their minds said he was the riffraff of society. The Jews could not get past the very idea of their Messiah bleeding and suffering and looking so conquered they couldn't see beyond the blood and the, and the pain and the stains of the cross to the reality of what it was accomplishing. And to the Jew and the Gentile alike, this was the great stumbling block or as Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11 puts it, the offense of the cross. And that word offense in the King James Version of the Bible is from a Greek word, scandalon. Think of something scandalous and you're thinking of the cross of Christ. It's scandalous that someone so innocent who never did anything wrong to anybody is hanging in pain upon the cross. And it's even more humiliating to me when I stop and look at him and with my eyes of faith see him bleeding there and think that I am partially responsible for it happening. I'm ashamed this morning, number one, because I see my own sinfulness. Isaiah chapter six, you'll recall, he was astonished at the sins that he had compared to the glory of God that he saw. 
And yet God in his love and forgiveness was willing to grant Isaiah a chance to be purged of his sin. What's that song we sing? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a, yes, worm as I? I know that modern-day songbooks have oftentimes updated the worm to the one, for such a one as I. Perhaps that's because we are afraid that people won't figure out what a worm is or how it's being used in this context metaphorically. But friends, I'm not here to minimize the reality of what happened, I'm here to say, yes, he died for such a worm as I. Years ago, I was at a friend's house and Robert Shuler's television program came on. Mr. Shuler had a crystal cathedral out in California. He'd written a book entitled Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. I think it was page 56 of that book in which he said, we should never tell people that they are sinners. This is bad for their self-esteem. Somehow Paul and the inspired writers didn't get the memo on that. And they said what needed to be said. I can't know I need to be saved unless I first know that I'm lost. But on Mr. Shuler's program, how far would he go with this? They were playing a song which has the phrase in it, God and sinners reconciled. They had actually, they had a bouncing ball on the screen to go with the words as well so you could keep up. And they actually had these words, instead of God and sinners reconciled, the words read, God and people reconciled. We can't tell people that they're sinners. That might hurt their feelings. It does cause me shame. But I don't get mad at the person that tells me what God's word says about the subject. I I inspect myself and I look at the way I've lived and I want to do differently. Was it for crimes that I have done he groaned upon the tree? Yes, it was. Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved, as Brother Winkler was pointing out last night in his message, a wretch, yes, don't shy away from the word, a wretch like me, like I am. I need to stop and analyze what I've done and realize that the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to pardon and sanctify me and the song that we sometimes sing, And Can It Be? I've gone through our songbook in preparation for this and I have noticed just how often our songwriters over the years have blended together both the ignominy, the shame, and the glory of the cross. And one thing that really haunts me as I think back to some of these lyrics is the personal application. Try to put yourself in place of these words saying this to God. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. And what did we just sing? 
Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And as that song proceeds, you'll remember the song goes on to say, from my smitten heart with tears. And I'm not trying to manufacture tears this morning, and I'm not asking you to manufacture them. I want to ask you, though, to consider and ask yourself with honest introspection, when is the last time, whether it's in the privacy of your home or in a Bible study or in a pulpit somewhere, when is the last time we were so moved by the story of the cross that we could actually cry about it? Young man in an assembly heard the preacher preaching on the cross of Christ and all that he endured and what he went through, and he, little boy, he starts thinking, I I knew Jesus loved me, we sing that all the time, but I didn't know he loved me that much. And he starts crying. And he's crying loud enough that people around him can hear someone is crying. So people start to turn around and see if they can spy who's crying. And the mother thinks that the boy is maybe making a spectacle of himself. And so she pokes him sharply in the side with her elbow and says, oh, don't take it so seriously. Are you kidding me? Take that boy out of the assembly if you must and hug him and cry right along with him or grab a hold of him right there in the assembly and cry right along with him. There wouldn't be anything shameful about an entire congregation being moved to tears at the sweet story of the cross, would there? I'm ashamed, number two, when I see not my sinfulness, but I see his selflessness. That makes me ashamed because I can see how selfish I am at times. But when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, yes, mine, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Selfless. His idea was not, what does this have to do with me? Once he had made his supplications, as we'll notice in a moment, there was that selflessness that said, not my will but thine be done. Father, I will do whatever needs to be done for others. I will bleed for them. Is there anyone that you would bleed for? I mean, die for? I think there probably is. And I suspect it's someone that you already love. That's why Romans 5 absolutely captivates my heart when it says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you bleed for someone that can't stand you? Would you bleed for someone that's out to get you or that completely rejects you? Jesus did. And our selflessness of the selflessness I see in Jesus is seen in, in these supplications, as I noted in the garden when he is weeping. Yes, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, how? With strong crying 
and tears. I don't know the last time you've sobbed. I'm not asking for a show of hands. I don't want to get that personal, but I do think that there is probably in every one of our memory banks a moment or several moments when we have sobbed out loud, when we have wailed. It wasn't a tear just moistening our eyes. It was not just a tear just trickling down the cheek. It was body shaking, sobbing. And when you read of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, and oh how I wish that everyone could participate in this Bible lands trip we have coming up in March because we're going to be worshiping on the first day of the week in Gethsemane. And you get to that spot or just get to that place in the Bible where you can read of those events and you start seeing him, as the songwriter put it, see the suffering friendless one weeping, praying there alone. And Luke's account tells us he was in an agony, Luke 22, and that uh, he prayed the more earnestly until, as it were, great drops of blood were falling down to the ground in the mixture of his sweat. His sweat and blood intermingled under this great stress and duress. You've heard the preachers describe it, the hematidrosis. And I'm not here just to repeat those things you've already heard, whether from this preacher or any other preacher. I'm here to treat this as if it's brand new. And as I see this as it's brand new, I am ashamed that he's not even to Calvary yet and he's bleeding for me. In the garden, I see the selfless suffering, I see the sweat, and I think of the song lyrics that we sing so often, tis midnight in the garden now, the suffering Savior prays alone from all removed, the Savior wrestles lone with fears, and the man of sorrows weeps in blood. When's the last time someone slapped you? Did it happen publicly? If someone took you today and brought you to the very front of this large room and blindfolded you and started slapping you and saying, say into the microphone who it is that just slapped you. Come on, tell us who did it. Everyone get in line. Get in line and you can have your turn to slap this individual. And oh, don't just slap them, spit. Spit in their face. Why? What did they do to deserve that? We just don't like them. We want you to slap them around, spit in their face, punch them. Isaiah, did you ever anticipate something like this happening to the Messiah? In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse number 6, listen to these messianic anticipations. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Someone grabbed you by the hair on your face and ripped it off. Someone slapped you across your face or did what 
that statement we read of in Matthew 27 where they placed a crown of thorns on his head, but not to be gentle about it. They took the scepter then, the rod that they'd given him to mock him as his kingly scepter. Oh, here's your royal robe, King Jesus. You've been telling everyone you're a king. Well, let's put a robe on you and a scepter in your hand. And then mockingly, hail king of the Jews. Oh, you're the king. Let's bow before the king. Bow before the king. Are you getting angry yet? Are you getting ashamed? You say, I didn't do that. I know, I, I, I wasn't there either in the actual slapping of my Lord. I wasn't, I wasn't bowing down in a mocking fashion and saying, oh, Jesus, Jesus, King of the Jews. But friends, make no mistake about it. If it hadn't been for your sins and mine, that would not have needed to happen. I was there in one sense. O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown, how art thou pale with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn, how does that visage languish, which once was bright as morn, I see the sacred head of my Savior wounded, And I think about that crown of thorns being smashed into his scalp with that rod. And I'm ashamed. I see them strip his garments off of him. And this is one that makes us uncomfortable to talk about. Matthew 27, 31 and following. They got him out to Calvary. They've already beaten this man severely. It's not just the slapping and the spitting that we read about in Matthew 26 and 27. And John 19, 1 says, matter-of-factly, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Why so matter-of-factly? Someone said one time, well, we don't need to go into a blow-by-blow description of what happened in scourging because the biblical writers didn't. Do you know why the biblical writers didn't have to go into a blow-by-blow description of scourging? Their readers knew what it was, and they didn't have to explain it. You and I have never seen, as far as I know, a scourging like the ones we read about historically during the time of Jesus. And so when I was a teenage boy in Noblesville, Indiana, where my father was then the preacher, and V.P. Black came to hold our gospel meeting... And I was sitting there as a teenager in the audience and he started talking about them tying our Lord's hands above his head perhaps and fastening him to a post. And then when I heard him say they took the whip and they often attached bone and stone to it and they would beat the Lord across his back and then he uttered the phrase that I've repeated I suppose in just about every gospel meeting I've ever been privileged to hold. Because that preacher that day didn't know what an impact he was going to make on me for decades. Decades have gone by since I first heard this phrase. I still think about it all the time. Until his skin was hanging in long ribbons of flesh. And his shoulder blades looked like white caps in a sea of blood. And with every blow, the flesh quivers, the muscles are mutilated, the tissues are torn. They haven't driven a nail in him yet. At Calvary, he's already bleeding for me. 
and I am ashamed. And then up Calvary's hill in shame, the blessed Savior trod. He bore it all that I might live between two thieves. They crucified the Son of God. He bore it all that I might live. Now, I want to ask you, what was going on while he hung on the cross? We think about the events leading up to the cross when they ripped his garments off of his back. And no doubt the blood that had clotted to those garments was now, those wounds are open again. And if, if you're thrown down in an old rugged cross, even if you hadn't been beaten across the back, it wouldn't feel good. But when you've already been beaten and your back is bloodied and raw, and then you're thrown down on a piece of timber like that, it's not pleasant to say the least. They take the cylindrical nail The Romans, considering the wrist a part of the hand, might have very well poised it right here. Taken the hammer, poised the nail, fastened him to the wood. Drive that nail through the flesh, through the bone, fasten him to the wood. Drive the nail, fasten him to the wood. And then take his feet and nail them. Drive a nail through his feet so that he can't get off this cross. He's hanging there. And meanwhile, the crown of thorns that had been placed on his head that no doubt caused massive head wounds, as he's hanging there and the sweat and the blood are dripping down his brow into his eyes, what can he do about it with hands fastened to a cross? You get sweat in your eyes or soap in your eyes, what do you do? Massage and work until it's gone. And then everything's all right. When your hands are nailed to a tree, you just have to deal with it. What, 15 minutes it took until he died? No, not 15 minutes. Mark 15, 25, they crucified him the third hour. What are they doing beneath the cross for six hours? Yes, six hours. Mocking. They're not done mocking. Oh, you're the Messiah. (laughs) You don't look very powerful up there on that cross like we would expect a Messiah to look. How could you be the anointed one of God and be up there? He saved others. Well, let's see him save himself. We're so sick and tired of hearing about everyone he saved. You say, how do you know the chief priests? Their envy. Pilate knew for envy they delivered him. Do you know how barbaric that is? Friends, can you even imagine going to the intensive care unit where someone that may not like you is dying or someone you don't like is dying? They have no issue with you, but you can't stand them. So you find out they're in the ICU and you go to the hospital and you go into their room when no one's looking and you start standing at the foot of their bed taunting them for dying, saying, how's it feel? You know you're about to die, don't you? You're not going to be around anymore. If someone tried to do that, they'd be arrested so fast and justifiably so. Friends, they stood beneath the cross of Jesus and mocked him unmercifully. And yet he 
mercifully said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There behold his agony, suffered on the bitter tree. See his anguish, see his faith, love triumphant still in death. And then there's this, the separation. Six hours. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I am ashamed that I am part of that answer. I'm ashamed. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. The glory of his cross, yes. You see, I'm not just ashamed this morning as I close out. I'm amazed. I'm ashamed of my sinfulness and ashamed when I look at his selflessness. But I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what he gave and how willingly he gave it. And I I think to myself about the statement that was made in Luke chapter 24 and verse 26. Ought not the Christ suffer and then what? Enter into his glory. You read the gospel of John and over and over you're going to see statements that equate his death with his glorification and the glorification of the Father. And no wonder our hymn books say things like, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. And so what are the conclusions? One song that's hard to get through is, I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou mightst ransom be and quicken from the dead. I, I gave, I gave my life for thee. What have you given for me? I want to close out with something I heard when I was a student at Freed Hardeman in the early 1980s. I dare say in an audience of this size, you've either heard this preacher or some other preacher tell this story. I'm telling it as I heard it, and then over the years, here's what's happened. I'll go someplace, I'll tell it, and someone will say, hey, I was there, I got some more details for you. And then one of our students a few years ago bought him a used Bible 
Inside that used Bible was a laminated, saved copy of the newspaper story about this story. And it was extremely helpful. I was not married when I heard this story and I had no children. But we had a visiting speaker at Fried Hardeman's chapel service that morning. I couldn't even tell you his name. But I'll never forget what he told that day. He told of an event that happened on a campus, college campus, Christian college campus, some decades earlier, back at a time when Coke bottles were thick glass bottles. And he told of how these boys were horsing around out in the hall and throwing these bottles down the hall and skipping them and firing them. And he told of how they fired one particular bottle down the hall that was traveling at a rapid rate of speed, and that's when a boy down the hall stepped out into a missile. He crumpled to the floor. They took him to Vanderbilt Hospital. He actually came home from the hospital, but then he started hemorrhaging later in the day. And he died. Do you think the fellow that threw the Coke bottle was ashamed? Oh, I can only imagine the shame. I, I didn't do it on purpose, but I still killed a human being. I'm guilty. I did it. He's dead because of me. So he has to take his punishment. But then word comes to him sometime later, the parents of the boy that you killed want to meet with you. How do you prepare for that meeting? You walk into the meeting and you know the father has every right to look you in the eye and say, do you have any idea, young man, what you took from us? Or we won't see him cross the stage and get his diploma and graduate from college like you'll be able to do someday. We won't be able to see that. No, thanks. And since he's the only child we have to carry on our name, we won't have grandchildren wearing our name. Thank you so much for taking from us our hope for grandchildren. I hope you're satisfied. That's not what they said. The father looked at the boy and with cracked emotion in his voice, he said, we know you didn't mean to kill our son. We know that. And we know that you would never have done it on purpose for anything in the world. But we also know something else. Your parents disowned you when you became a Christian, and you have no mom and dad anymore to call mom and dad, you're not welcome. So my wife and I have talked about it and we've prayed about it. And we came here today because we want to invite you to become our son. (laughs) How do you go from feeling so ashamed to feeling so blessed so fast. It's grace. And I look at Jesus 
And I look at the Father God and I, it's as if I say to the Father, I'm sorry. He says, you killed my son, my only begotten son. You're one of the reasons I had to, had to put him to death. I'm sorry, God. I want to adopt you. What? You want to adopt me as your own child to call me your son? I want to adopt you. No wonder we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I know that it might not be traditional for folks to respond at a public event like this instead of a home congregation. And I know that people have things on their schedules, but I'm going to say this by way of invitation without apology. I will be more than happy and any other good faithful Christian here in this room will be more than happy to put off until a little bit later the morsels I'm going to eat or the fellowship I'm going to have, I would be more than happy to put that off to see someone enjoy sweet fellowship with the one who died for them and bled for them on the cross, wouldn't you? And so as the song is about to be sung, just as I am, you ask yourself, are you ready just as you are to meet the Lord and to face death? If you're not, then... The invitation song is not just a formality. We're not just doing this because, well, we're supposed to offer an invitation. We really believe that the gospel can prick hearts in a crowd of any size at any time. And so if there's even one soul here this morning that needs to do what you've known you needed to do for a long time, you've just been putting it off, friends, I'm begging you to stand beneath the cross of Jesus Take your stand there, just look at him, look him in the eyes, let him look you in the eyes with love and hurt and suffering and yet welcoming grace at the same time. And you respond to his gospel by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and putting him on in baptism like those first century believers did to become members of the church. Acts, the book of Acts tells you all those steps are, are valid and necessary. I beg you to, if you're not a faithful Christian, if you've crucified the Son of God afresh, and as we visited the cross this morning in just brief, I hope that if you're putting him to an open shame and crucifying him all over again by the way you've apostatized and left him. If you've left your first love, love him again. Love him now. You, you make your way down the aisle. We'll try to help you find a place to sit. We love you. Won't you get right with God right now by the cross as together we stand and sing. Won't you please come to Jesus?